Let's pray together. With all of my heart, God, with all of our being, we long for you. We want to see you on that day. To witness the reunions, to witness the joy, to worship you face to face. Until that day, God, may we experience both your faithfulness and the strength in us that makes us faithful here. We turn our hearts to you in need of your guidance and your grace today. May you lead us and guide us in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. If you could have looked out and seen the city that we're talking about today, you would have been wowed. Because Pergamum was stunning. The glory of the power of Rome. Brilliant bluish-white marble was used to make the city stand out. It is said that it could be seen 20 miles out at sea. Part of the city was perched atop the Acropolis, 900 feet above the sea. If you go to the next picture where you can see the Acropolis, the next one, that's beautiful too. You can see that all of these remains, as they looked out over, showed this jewel of Asia. It was the capital city, surpassed later by Ephesus, the first city we looked at in size and in prominence and in wealth. But this city was amazing and brilliant. The city was filled with people seeking to put their trust in someone or something. Spiritual people deeply longing for meaning. They built temples to Artemis, Zeus, and others, two others of which I'll look at today with you. Through these temples, they attempted to show spiritual and physical wealth to the world. And then along came the message of Jesus Christ. Along came a message of this God who was supreme. The sacrifice and salvation of Jesus was shared and people responded. Dr. Richard Choi shared that Christianity took off and endured because of the greatness of the idea and the simplicity of the message. There was this sovereign God who was drawing people to himself. Let's read that message as we continue our series today, The Seven Churches of Revelation, our third church, Pergamum. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, it says, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, there are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to those 
who are victorious. I will give each of them a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. This is packed with meaning in this short letter. I want to invite you to remember the four characteristics that take place in these letters. Almost without exception, there is a characteristic of God that applies especially to that church. There is an affirmation from Jesus to that church. There is a rebuke. And then there is a promise for those who stay faithful to God that there is something that they can hold on to. The Apostle John wrote this letter, but it is in red. He was moved by the Spirit to share this message of Jesus with them. And the opening affirmation, the characteristic of Jesus Christ, actually, the words of him who have the sharp, double-edged sword. This is the characteristic of God that especially applies to the people of Pergamum. You see, in Asia, they used a sword that had only one side. Now, this might be of particular interest to Sean's and Asher's, you know, like they had one-sided sword. You can look up pictures of these in Asia. But particularly in Roman power, the two edges to the sword was a symbol of their might and their strength. The provincial governor of that city was known as having the right to the sword. That means that Rome's authority in Pergamum allowed them to rule and to reign and to say who lived and who died. Even those who were Christians that were being persecuted at that time, they knew that the one who had the right to the sword could determine if they lived or if they died. So in John's letter, it's a very clear statement from the very outset to a persecuted people that said, you live in a city where they have the right to the sword. They have the ability to decide who lives and who dies, but I am the one who have the double-edged sword. I come to remind you that it is truly I, God of the universe, the one who determines who lives and dies. You think that you are under the power of this one here, but I want you to remember that there is a sovereign one who really holds the authority and the power and the strength. You see, we can forget, and they forgot too, that when you're under persecution, you think that there are powers that are over you and that it is the end of you. It looks to you like cancer has the last word. It looks to you like a certain person has power over you. It looks like the end of your relationship is the end of your life. But it's not true. It's not true, just like these believers, they say, I am the one who comes with the double-edged sword. I am the one who holds life, Jesus says. I am the one who holds the real power, and even as you are persecuted, remember who holds it. John gives the city of Pergamum an unusual de designation. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Some of you are like, yes, I testify to that today. And in case you missed it, where Satan lives later on. Where Satan has his throne and where Satan lives. Now, many scholars uh, believe here that this was in reference to the altar of Zeus, which you're going to see here in a moment. This is the altar of Zeus that most believe that this was the place. It stood, stood on the summit of Pergamum's Acropolis. It could also be Pergamum's prominent imperial cult that was referred to as Satan's throne. But there was so much happening in that city that could have borne this description. 
But yet Jesus says that's not really the problem. You live in the place where Satan's throne is. You live in the place where Satan lives. But look it, it's the commendation that follows. It's the affirmation. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who has put, was put to death in your city. These people were faithful, Jesus says. Even as they lived where Satan's throne was and where Satan lived, they remained faithful. If you're having a hard time saying strong where you live, where you go to school, where you work, these words could have particular relevance to you because these people were in a difficult place. And yet they looked to the God of power. They looked to the sovereign one, the one of strength, and they remained true to that God. So, where was this difficult place they lived? I want to describe it to you for a moment. The Dionysus temple, Dionysus was the son of Zeus. Uh, this was his temple build up, built up into the mountainside. Believed to be the son of Zeus, a god, and a human mother, Dionysus supposedly offered his followers life after death. Born of a virgin, it said, eating meat with blood in it. There was a lot of sexual abuse and immorality associated with their temple worship practice. According to the teaching of the Dionysus cult, the followers who drank wine in excess actually became one with Dionysus. Dionysus' worship was so wild that it was outlawed in Rome because the Romans considered it to be immoral. That says something to you. You should pause. You should say, oh my. This is where the people lived. This is the throne of Satan, the place where Satan lived. Do you ever find that stories repeat themselves? We watch movies and we're like, oh, this is that one. We haven't even gotten very far into it and we're like, oh, this is that one where the unlikely coach moves into the town and rallies the players and they win. Oh, this is that one, the time when those two fall in love and we think it's unlikely, but it's gonna happen, they're gonna be in love. Or this is that one, the one where it looks like the hero is going to be beaten but in the end, he will triumph. This is that kind of story. We rely on these. We watch these movies still, and we still sit on the edge of our seats wanting this story to play out. And here's one of those stories where John draws back on an old, old story. It's an Old Testament story. It's a 13th century story. And so he mentions these characters that if you're not aware of the story that preceded, then you won't know the context and you won't understand why he's bringing them up now. So if you remember this guy, Balaam and his donkey, do you recall? A lot of people will talk about this. That's one that I've even heard from people, you know, if God can use a donkey, then I'm sure he can use you as a woman pastor. This is the story that comes up most frequently with that from people. No, I'm serious. That's the most frequently I hear this story. I've heard it at least two dozen times in my ministry, this story in reference to that. But that's not what we're talking about here. Balaam was actually, he was commanded by the king of Moab to come to curse the Israelites. You see, this king of Moab, Balak, was getting really nervous because the Israelites were going through and they were defeating all the people that were undefeatable. 
And so he started to get really scared. They're wandering through the wilderness. They're approaching his kingdom. And so there's this prophet for hire, sorcerer, kind of a mixed bag. But this guy, Balaam, he calls him and he says, I want you to curse them. So he commands him to come to curse. And he promises to pay him excellently, right? So Numbers 22, 5 and 6 here He sent messengers to summon Balaam, son of Beor, who was at Pithor, near the Euphrates River in his native land. Balak said, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the land and have settled next to me. Next verse. Now come and put a curse on these people because they are too powerful for me. Perhaps then I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that whoever you bless will be blessed and whoever you curse will be cursed. This is the reference to Balaam and Balak. So in verse 12 of the same chapter we read, but God said to Balaam, do not go with them. You must not put a curse on those people because they are blessed. So we find in this story A very curious thing happens. Balaam is not able to curse the people of God. It fails. And he goes on to have these prophecies in Numbers chapter 22 to 25. So let's read one last part. Numbers 24, 10 and 11, it says, Then Balak's anger turned against Balaam. He struck his hands together and said to him, I summoned you to curse my enemies, but you have blessed them these three times. Now leave me at once and go home. I said I would reward you handsomely, but the Lord has kept you from being rewarded. This is where it ends, but yet Jewish tradition suggests this very thing that Revelation chapter 2 brings out. How did the people of God fall? How did it end their own God cursing them in Numbers chapter 25 instead of being cursed by this prophet for hire? The Israelites are found a few chapters later fornicating with Moabite women before the tabernacle. And tradition of the Jews said that Balaam Balaam told Balak, I can't curse them, but what you can do instead is woo them into sin. That if they start worshiping other gods, that God himself will curse them. Entice them through their stomachs, entice them through their lust. And so that's what Moab did. So the tradition is that when Balaam couldn't curse them successfully, that Balak took his advice and that they were enticed and wooed into sin. How did Balaam die? The Israelites were defeated and then Balaam is killed by the sword of God. John is drawing on this text in the Old Testament that if you do not repent of your Balaam, Balak activities, I will come and fight you with my sword, and your end will be the same as Balaam. Scholars disagree who the Nicolaitans were, but according to church tradition, they comprised a small group of people who believed that since they were redeemed by Jesus, they were therefore free in him, and they could participate in any immoral ceremonies to idols because those weren't gods anyway. So they took their grace in Christ as freedom to do whatever they wanted. So in verse 16, we're back to this image of the sword of the Lord from the very mouth of God. And he says, turn away from what you're doing. Turn away from believing these things, from following this same pattern. You see, what happened with Balaam, giving this advice to Balak, was that the people of God were turned away from God 
And not by a curse, but by them turning their own hearts from God. Second piece historically about this place where they lived. Asclepius, the snake god. You're going to see Asclepius here in a moment. A video actually with no sound. I just want to talk through it. But Asclepius right here, this god of medicine and healing. It is said too that he was born of a virgin, a human mother and a godfather. The healing center was founded in the 4th century BC, this healing center that you're seeing here that I walked through, around a sacred spring that still flows. When the people of Pergamum needed healing, they went to the temple shrine there with Asclepius, the snake god. As everyone entered the hospital complex, they would bow down before the snake god, and the priests would interview them to find out what their ailment was. Because anyone nearing death or a woman who was about to give labor were not allowed into the place because they didn't want to taint their God because childbearing was so risky that they might die in childbirth or if you were near death, they didn't want you to taint the reputation of their God. And so they interviewed people to see who was appropriate for coming in to receive healing from Asclepius. Once accepted, patients were led through an underground tunnel that you can see here to a huge treatment room where they were put to sleep, probably after being drugged, the patients waited to receive dreams and visions from Asclepius, and that the priests would then determine their treatments based on their dreams. They would take mud baths in the sacred springs of water, they would exercise, change their diet, participate in rest and theater and community, and enjoy times together. They focused on a whole person healing believing that their bodies and their souls needed healing and rest. Visiting this place, it is one of serenity. You can see why people went there even all these years later. You feel it walking into the place. Even the Roman emperor and philosopher Marcus Aurelius went there in addition to many others. I remember walking through those places that you just saw. Once healed, patients would bow down on their knees before the statue of Asclepius, thank him for their healing and give him gifts. And they would then ascribe the name of the one healed on a large white stone as a testimony to the healing of Asclepius. This large white stone would then serve as a testimony to the healing of their God. During his ministry on earth, Jesus provided John and the other disciples with evidence that refuted the claims of this God, Asclepius. Jews and Christians already knew that the snake was not a symbol of healing, but was from the Garden of Eden a symbol of evil and going after someone not of God. Furthermore, in the second and third miracles recorded in the Gospel of John, we see Jesus had the power to even raise a dead child. He wouldn't block people who were near death. He would welcome them because he could heal them. It is even, it is even said, scholars believe, that a temple to Asclepius was just down the way from the pool of Bethsaida where the man who was crippled for 38 years was healed at the pool of Bethsaida. John had actually seen Jesus heal, and he knew that no snake god could heal like Jesus could. These white stones were used all throughout history. We might think of them as landscaping tools, things that you spread around your flowers and your gardens, but they were used in history to show a verdict. A judge could put out a black rock or a white stone to show if you were either guilty or set free. 
They were also used in a gladiator match. Gladiators that drew a black stone out of the bag had to fight, and those who drew a white stone were given rest and reprieve. Uh, A patron who received a white stone with someone else's name on it could use it like a credit card around town. Those who had great success in the Greek Olympic Games were given a white stone with their name on it, maintained at the public's expense. White stones were also covenant stones that were carried between with a pledge between each other. So in Pergamum, as in our culture today, Satan wanted the people of God to believe that he was the source of all power. So whether it's Asclepius or whether it's each of these other gods, that he wanted them to believe that it was not God who had the source of power, but not giving God the credit God was due, but instead turning their attention to other things. So who gets the credit for your health? Oh, Asclepius, the god, the snake god of healing. Who gets the credit for your food? Well, Demeter, the goddess of grain. Who gets the credit for your wealth? Oh, Dionysus, of course. Deeply spiritual people seeking after the divine, believing that these gods had the final word, though it was truly the god of gods that was drawing them to himself. So I'm wondering, how do we communicate our faith today? In light of this, who gets the credit for your health? Who gets the credit for your wealth? Who gets the credit for your peace? Because what they were being drawn back to by Jesus was honoring and acknowledging the God who rules and who reigns. In this background, now that you understand perhaps a bit more of the place where Satan lived, perhaps you can understand a bit more why these words came from Jesus to these people. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. God strategically placed believers in this city, in this evil world, to be in the world but not of it, witnessing to the power and work of God in their lives. There were some who were giving in to those pressures, and that's where the Balaam-Balak story comes in. That's where the Nicolaitans come in, that some were being conformed instead of being transformed. Jesus' answer is in one word, repent. Turn away from all of that. Turn away from looking every which way to have credit due to this God or to that God or to this. You're chasing all these things, but look to me. Repent. Turn to me. Don't be enticed to immorality or lusts of any kind, but turn to me. Don't keep going this way. How were they able to stay faithful? Well, I'd like to point one thing out. They were living in community. I know where you all live, was the verse. I know where you all live together. They were following the word of God and standing together. We must be willing to do this together, this life, to disciple, encourage, and strengthen, and pray for each other. God didn't ask us to do it alone. Believing in heart and mind and soul what we said this morning, holy, holy, holy is our God. The angels sing that before the throne of God, and these people live where the throne of Satan was, he says. But they continue to cry out, holy forever, holy, holy, holy God, because together 
They were strengthened to be faithful, to know who was true and just and who held the double-edged sword, the one who truly judged what was right and what was wrong, the sovereign God. John was entreating them to fix their eyes on Jesus. And you know what you get, he says? Those who are victorious get a white stone of victory. Those who are victorious get a white stone of healing. Those who are victorious get a white stone of wholeness. Those who are victorious get a white stone of forgiveness. You see, even now you're invited to remember who you are. That at the second coming of Jesus, when he comes in all of his glory, with the angels with him, when this triumphant God reigns here fully with his throne, God will tell us who we really are. And that can start even now. So the people of God were reminded that I will give you hidden manna. I will give you a white stone. I know your name. The enemy is whispering to you who you are, and it's not true. Remember who you are. The struggle is real. You're pulled to worship that which is not God. You are wooed to take part in these things around you. You can name what those are for you. You know what those are. But while Satan is calling you to all sorts of things, you are not those things. God reminds you who you are. Your real name, your real identity is found in this Jesus. You are redeemed. You are a friend of God. You are beloved of God. You are chosen. You are precious. He says you have a name, and it's not any of those other names. It's not any of those things the enemy is whispering to you as you're enticed to worship Zeus or Artemis or Dionysus or uh, ask. The other dude, um, any of these things. I don't want to remember those names. I want to remember the name. All those names of those other gods. He draws you back in faithfulness to worshiping the one God. The one God who knows who you are. That is our hope.